What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have journalist Diane Diamond. Some of you may have seen her on TV back in the day. She's the first one to break the Michael Jackson uh, sexual assault uh, and child abuse allegations back in the 90s. She was also the very first reporter on scene at the Nicole Brown murders. Uh, that's O.J. Simpson's ex-wife uh, that he didn't murder. So... She's seen some shit, and she's been around the block. She's investigated every high-profile case you could possibly think of, which is what we dive into on this episode. So enjoy this one. It gets fucking crazy. Make sure you like this video, subscribe to the channel, and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content to this channel. Also, drop a comment below if you're enjoying the content. If you'd like to see me interview somebody else that you have in mind, drop that in the comments below, and I'll reach out to them and hopefully get them on the show. I really appreciate it, and enjoy this episode for the East Forks Puts a Podcast with Diane Diamond. See you next time. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to another episode of the East Forks Puts a Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have investigative journalist Diane Diamond. So some of you might have grown up watching her, actually, uh, on TV and uh, and stuff like that and reporting on the news. I know I've seen you before. Um, even before I saw you in the documentary, I was like, I saw you on the Epstein doc and I was like, holy crap, like she looks super familiar. And I like looked you up and I'm like, oh my God. Like I've seen you like break a ton of stuff. I can't believe it. Right. <laughs> right. So um, thank you for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And if you could just give everybody kind of like a background, a quick synopsis of you, that would be amazing. Sure. My name is Diane Diamond. I um, hail from Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I have lived all over the country. Um, from Albuquerque, I went to Washington, D.C., where I worked for National Public Radio. I did the newscasts on All Things Considered, and I was in radio for many, many years. And then I decided... I, Radio was um, disintegrating, so to speak. Radio news departments were uh, dismantling. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to get into TV, I better try right. before I get too old, you know. So um, I applied all over the place. And my first TV job was CBS in New York. So that was quite a leap for me. I, I look back and I wonder, how the heck did I do that? Right. But from syndicated television, used to work for the TV show Hard Copy. Moved to Hollywood, California with my husband to do that. Most of the 90s I was there. I came back east in at the end of the 90s, and I co-anchored a newscast with Geraldo Rivera <laughs> at CNBC. It was called Upfront Tonight, and it was great. It was sort of a jazzy sort of... Um, millennial type newscast you know it wasn't the walter cronkite thing although we did very serious news uh we were more loosey-goosey about it um sort of like the news is today but this was way back then um and so i've been around the block so to speak i worked at msnbc i worked at court tv i've covered all sorts of trials my expertise even though i worked on capitol hill for many years as a radio reporter uh doing politics my expertise really is crime and justice and that's um that's what gets me you know right. i worries about the underdogs right definitely yeah. and and all the the stories that you've reported on that we've that i'm going to talk about today are just that, are crime and justice and, and those kind of, uh, you know, David and Goliath, really. I mean, if you look at a lot of them, it's kind of like the unsung person that doesn't have a voice versus this juggernaut of a person, whether they're famous or they're filthy rich and they have connections. Um, so you've covered the gamma, if that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's like 
the stories that compel me the most are the ones about ordinary people that just got caught up in extraordinary circumstances and then the media comes in and their life is never the same. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and one of the, the first things that pops out definitely in your bio, just in, in you in general is the Michael Jackson, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, you're the first one to kind of report on those, the, the, the cases against him, right. The, or the, um, oh my God. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So can you kind of touch like how, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> yeah. You know, I work for a hard copy here in New York. I live in New York now and have for 20 years. Um, and, and I had just recently moved out to the California headquarters of hard copy. And, you know, you're making sources and you're meeting cops and you're doing the things you do in your beat. And all of a sudden I get a phone call. Hey, you know, from my news director said to me, they're raiding Michael Jackson's apartment in New, in um, Los Angeles and the ranch in Santa Barbara. Go figure out why. I mean, it was as easy as that. Wow. And I her office. I went upstairs and spoke to her. I came downstairs and my producer was waving crazy at me from across the room. And he had a source on the phone that said, meet me at a restaurant in Santa Monica. I got something I want to give you because he, quote, shouldn't get away with it again. So we said, okay, we'll be right there. And um, I, I was privy to the child welfare report, the LAPD report, and from there, I just have, I have virtually never stopped covering that story. Uh, that was 1993. In 2003, I'm already back in New York, but another kid comes forward with more allegations. So I broke that story as well. I was outside Neverland when they were raiding it. Um, covered the trial in 2005. And then I wrote this book about my many, many years covering the trial and the the circumstances and then the trial wow what's the book called it's called be careful who you love inside the michael jackson case and that of course is a lyric from billy jean yep my mom always told me be careful who you love wow. that was pretty <laughs> that's crazy so yeah. so it's kind of like a, i talked to a lot of homicide detectives i talked to um greg kading who um did the biggie and tupac murders i talked to um uh, a couple other like FBI profiles and stuff like that. And they always tell me, I, I wondered, I, I talked about um, uh, Frank Salerno, who's actually the, the Hillside Strangler, who you've interviewed, the guy who called him. So that's the detective who called him. So they've always told me, I'm like, how do these guys, because uh, Frank Salerno got Hillside Strangler. Right after that, he got Richard Ramirez. And I asked the detectives, I'm like, how the hell, like, you know, one of those cases is like a lifetime. Like that's like a one in a lifetime. And he told me, he's like, well, you know, he was sitting around at dinner and he got a phone call to go in for a particular murder scene. He went in and you don't know that it's that case when you get it. So is it similar to like in reporting? Like you said, like you got this anonymous kind of person just randomly and you just happened to be the person that was there that your producer was like, hey, go meet this person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Steve Durant producer. And actually, I had been in LA not very long, but I had done a bunch of stuff on Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam. Mm -hmm. um, that was sort of my inauguration in LA. And so this source that was calling said, you know, I want to talk to that woman who did the Heidi Fleiss story. Oh. So, you know, I'm on the crime beat and um, I got picked. 
I, I just got lucky. I got picked. And then from there, you know, things just exploded in my life. Uh, you know, I heard from people who worked at Neverland. I heard from wardrobe people and makeup people and music industry people and people who used to live next door to the Jacksons in in Encino, California, and from, in, from Gary, Indiana. I mean, I, the, I I spent all my time sifting through um, sources that were: are they real? Are they fake? Do they want to be on TV? Are they asking for money? It was exhausting, but. Um, you know, you just follow the lead, like you're a homicide detective. You get to the scene and then, oh my God, you realize you're dealing with a serial killer. Right. Yeah. And, and, and two things from that is like, is one that's, it seems everybody I talk to that's had like crazy cases, it started with like a crazy case like this. It does blow up. And then next thing you know, they're, they're writing books, they're getting on these other big cases, they're, they're on these shows and stuff like that. And that seems to what happened to you. But how does that take a toll on like, your life? Because when I talk to homicide detectives, and they involve themselves in a Hillside Strangler, a Richard Ramirez, uh, a notorious B.I.G. and Tupac murder, like, it basically like, from all the talks that I've talked to them, it's almost ruined their lives, because they involve they're so involved, if that makes sense. It, uh, it it literally consumes you. Right. And you know, my husband of 30 years <laughs> is in the same business. Uh, he's a radio uh, a newsman on the radio and does a lot of voiceover and whatnot. But so he got it. He understood. He saw the, um, I don't want to say I was obsessed with it, but I was overwhelmed with it. And, you know, you want to do a good job. You want to do a good job on it. And so you study and you work and you follow up every lead. And then, oh, my God, three years have gone by, you know, Um, it does. It does consume you. I have a a daughter who was back in New York while I'm in L.A. getting death threats and people are vandalizing our home and people are following me home from hard copy. And I was worried about her. I was really worried about her. She was in in college brand new in college at NYU and I wanted to warn her but then I didn't want to scare her and you know so it, it was a tough time I, I'll tell you there were you know you're a big tough investigative reporter and then you go home and cry <laughs> right yeah I can only imagine because it's especially something like that you're talking about Michael Jackson insane allegations like huge allegations uh, you know, the, if not the most famous, you know, performer and artist of all time, uh, it's it's a lot. There's a lot of weight there. Well, and not only from his team. I mean, he had private detectives and uh, lawyers and paralegals and whatever, but from the fan base. Right. You know, I would walk outside the door. Uh, we were on the Paramount lot in California, and I would walk out of the lot to go to the parking lot across the street to my car, and there would be a gaggle of fans out to get me, you know? Right, right. So it, it was a little overwhelming. And I have to tell you, honestly, I was sort of baffled by it because I'm, I don't do celebrity reporting. I never did anything on, on a celebrity before. So to me, I was following a crime or an alleged crime. Right. Um, uh, ghastly one, if it was true. And so I just knew that you wouldn't go and break into a superstar's home unless you had a warrant, which meant a judge had to know what the secret evidence was and approved it, especially for somebody like Michael Jackson. And 
different locations. So I knew there had to be some there there. Right. You know, you don't just break in and start going through Michael Jackson's house. Right. So the facts just take you and the clues just take you again, like your homicide detective. Right. You know, you're following it and then you realize you haven't eaten for a couple of days. <laughs> you right. get up and again yeah it's like that's like that like uh, what's a cliche like where there's smoke there's fire type thing like that's what i that's what always kind of uh when people say oh that's not true about that person like you know, like with r kelly just another example of like you know there's all there's only so many times where like 50 plus people can come out and say the same thing and there not be one shred of that be to be real if that makes sense it, it does it entirely and i you know what i'm going to be honest with you I got real tired of being called a racist, you know, even back then, right. 95. Um, and I had calls on the R. Kelly case. A lot of people called me. My daughter is captive. Help me get her out. And I thought to myself, you know what? I am not going after another black man right. on charges of uh, pedophilia and enslaving women. And I, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And of course, now you see what's happened with him. He's been found guilty, guilty, guilty. He's getting set to be sentenced now. Yep. And I'm kind of ashamed that I let it go. But at the time, I mean, jobs, and it would, would have been hard for me to, um, I didn't have a network behind me at that right. time. So I justified yeah. it. I could have done it by myself, but I didn't. And I, I'm sorry I didn't. That was a good story that needed to be told yeah yeah and i think to, to your point though i think it was uh it was told well by i mean that lifetime I, first of all lifetime i was like what the hell this is great quality and great documentary um that blew the lid off of it uh for sure and then his interview was it with gail yeah gail uh gail king yes that was so incriminating <laughs> you know it's just like in the Bronco running. It's like, what's yep. happening? Yeah, it's what it reminded me of. It's very OJ-ish of like, um, yeah. speaking of, <laughs> yeah, you uh, you also, uh, were you were the first person on the scene of, um, of that as well, right? Yeah, boy, you've done your homework on me. <laughs> yeah, no, doing Michael Jackson, that's 93, August 93 that story and then in june 95 is that right i'm still doing michael jackson stories i mean like every day or three times a week i got another angle i got another source i got another interview and it's i think it was a weekend i was off that day and i got a call and they said go to brentwood there's been a murder oj simpson's wife i said okay so i went and i as I pulled up with my cameraman, the morgue truck was just pulling away. I don't know if it was Nicole Brown Simpson's body or Ron Goldman's body. I don't know. But as we pulled away, we saw this sidewalk leading up to her house and the yellow police tape, but rivulets of blood in the sidewalk, in the pavers, all the way down to the sidewalk and, and blood all the way down to the corner at the stop sign, there were like swishes of blood. And I, I later learned that this was where her dog had gotten out, run through the blood, and then the leash behind him had taken him all the way to the stop sign. Wow. So yeah, that was, that was really something. And there was nobody there to stop us. So I said to my cameraman, Chad Mullinex, I said, come on, 
move the yellow tape and we opened the door to her little patio area and you could see where she had fallen. You could see blood drops in these big purple flowers that were by the gate. And as you went in, you could look right into her house, into her living room. It was all glass. There were still burning and pictures of the kids on the mantelpiece. And it was really surreal. It was really surreal. Wow. How, how was it? Why was there no one there? Because the, the, they just already got the body. They're gone. They, don't, they didn't keep anyone there. They took the bodies and put up the tape and I guess took their photographs. And by the time I got there, the cops work was done. And I, wow. you know, silly now I think about why isn't anyone hosing off all this blood? Why is it just here drying in the sun? You know, it was June, it was getting hot. Um, it's funny what you think of later, <laughs> you know. Right. What, what you remember later about what you were thinking at the time. But there were footprints. You could see footprints in blood. There was a handprint on the side of the wall. I mean, we captured it all. And um, those, were the, those were the pieces of video that the public saw for years afterward, even during his trial. You know, we'd read over and over. Yeah, and, and that's like what you said, fingerprints and footprints and stuff like that. Like, is that because my personal opinion is like growing up, like that case was like crazy on TV and like everybody was happy when he got, uh, you know, he was, he was found innocent, which I, well, not, every not everybody, but, but for the most, for what the news showed, it was like, it was a lot of people were like, Oh yeah. You know, he's, you know, he didn't do whatever it, to me. It's like obvious that, that he was, you know, he did it. And then of course he makes a book afterwards. Like if I did it or whatever, like, I don't know. And then, the, yeah, 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 like I, I, but like as an, an investigator, like when you're, you know, I think it was like a sloppy job of like the police department of just not really doing the due diligence because it was OJ. Um, well, you know, you, yeah, you make a very good point there. I, I got, so they took me off Jackson for a while and I started working OJ right. and I, a copy from a source of the police interrogation of OJ. Now, you know, he's just come back from Chicago. They get him in a room. He's got a cut on his hand. He's got, you know, your wife is dead or your ex-wife. Uh, you know, we're going to question you. Well, this, I think it was about 28 minutes long. We ran the whole thing on the air. And it was it, Lang and Van Adder were the detectives, seasoned guys, really good guys. They don't want to take anything away from the cops. But like you say, they were pretty deferential to this guy. You know, there was not like, hey, what the hell? What's, what's the cut on your hand? Where the hell were you? Give us a rundown. Give us a time back. There was no tough questions. They were like having a chat with the football star. So that was my first clue. And then, and then I got, uh, I had another source who gave me all of the crime scene photos. And that's like something you never forget. When you see the nearly decapitated Nicole Brown Simpson laying there at the spot where you just were. And the brutality of it. I mean, you know, probably because I know you you watched crime dramas. It, this was a crime of passion. I was just about to say that. Yep. You don't just stab somebody and run away. This was stabbing and stabbing and slashing. And it, it, it was horrible for both bodies, but Nicole Brown Simpson, especially. And, um, you know, the the public, I think, got 
caught up in the Johnny Cochran, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit drama of it all. And they forgot these two victims, right. you know, people died by somebody's hand and OJ's Bronco had blood all over it. I rented a, a Bronco that looked just like his and we put red masking tape everywhere in the in little X's of red masking tape, every place you found blood. And it was stunning how much blood they found in that Bronco. But when you got to trial, everything got all screwy and um, vague. I, I just don't think the prosecution did a very good job. They were right. all over. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I think the, un unfortunately, the media, I think, plays a big part good and bad when it comes to this stuff and how it's reported and what yeah. information is, is put out there. I mean, um, I'm not trying to pivot or whatever, but like, it just reminds me of like the opposite happened with like Scott Peterson in my eyes. Um, yes. right. Because like he convicted right away, he was convicted before he even stepped foot in a courtroom. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's very much like the movie gone girl where it's like, you know, he, he, uh, you know, he he helped with the searches. He, he wasn't emotional on camera. He had the girlfriend. He had all these things that like, yeah, you know, was he a, you know, a bad husband? And she knows why. Yeah. Okay. But did he kill her? I don't know. And then when, and then the document that just came out a couple, like a year and a half, two years ago, blew my mind. I don't know if you saw it. Um, it's called the, the murder of Lacey Peterson. And it's like the up, it's like all the information that like, was in the trial, but was not in the media. Like when uh, I always ask people when they, because everyone knew like, oh, when Scott Peterson was fleeing the scene, like it looked like he was fleeing, right? He's going to Mexico. He, he changed, he dyed his hair. Mm -hmm. And then you hear the other side of it. You're like, well, he dyed his hair because everyone wanted to kill him. Uh, and he didn't want to look like himself. The money that he had was because his mom had asked him to take out like a large amount of money um because there was like an error or something it, it was definitely like justified of why he did that and then he was headed to san diego to go play golf with his brother and his dad not in mexico to flee and it's just crazy when you hear them tell that version you're like wow that makes so much sense but on the news when nancy is telling me this guy is running down this you know right. I i'm just like oh he's a piece of shit he killed her da, da, da. no question they don't look at the the other uh, break-ins in the neighborhood they don't look at the other uh, pregnant woman found in the bay that was mutilated as well there's none of that talked about at all um not saying he's 100 innocent i just i don't know if that information was in the media i think it would have been a little bit harder and that's why it reminds me so much of oj where it's like the opposite happened like the glove i mean you see that and you can't, he can't put the glove on oh visually that's like there's no way he could have done this but you know that that's such theater oh yeah <laughs> I'm remembering now when you're we're talking about OJ, I found a kid who we, he came forward, called me up. I went and interviewed him and, and he said, I'm a drug dealer. Okay. I'm a drug dealer. And right before she was killed, OJ called me up because he's one of my regulars and I got him some stuff. And we went to Burger King and we got a burger and he took the stuff and ate a burger and, you know, he was high as a kite. And then I left. Wow. So can this be true? I mean, was OJ high as a kite? And whoa. So we took this drug dealer to not one, but two polygraph 
people. And one of them was Ed Gelb, who is a, um, a legend in the polygrapher community. Right. And they both said, he's telling the truth. So we put it on the air, you know, questioning it. You know, his version, we can't get a comment from the OJ team. Try to present both sides, and that's my point. Um, I have to tell you, I'm a little embarrassed about my profession. <laughs> and so you don't see me on TV a lot anymore because it's all so much drama, you know, and it's all such theater, and we talk about gloves instead of both sides of a story. So now I, I sit at home and I write books. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> I control that narrative. Right. Um, it be it politics, national politics, state politics, crime, uh, brutal crime stories, whatever it is, that a, a narrative gets fixed. Like my former colleague Nancy Grace will tell you, you know, the top mom did this terrible thing. Well, wait a minute, we haven't even had a trial yet. Right. There's We really don't know what happened, but the narrative gets set. And then it gets repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And then it becomes somehow truth. Yeah, it's that's exactly what happens. Again, that's why you don't see me a lot anymore. <laughs> right. Well, it's hard because I mean, now it's like so much. It's not it's it's whoever's first versus right. It's whoever's whoever puts it out first. Or who has the more, more sensational storyline to tell. True. Oh, Russiagate. You know, it's Russian disinformation. Well, gee, golly. Now we realize it wasn't anything like that. Right. You know, we get consumed by these storylines instead of having a one place we can go and really say, okay, what really happened with Scott Peterson or OJ or Jean Benet Ramsey or, you know, I could go down a whole list. Name and yeah, insert any controversial major, you know, a crime in the last 30 years. It's, it's every single one of them has it. And it's like, honestly, I think Nancy Grace, like herself, literally, in my opinion, got Scott Peterson convicted just by her every night, just hammering away at this, this, this idea of what, what happened. And then, you know, the evidence either shows it or doesn't, but it doesn't even matter at that point. Like, in my opinion. And so when the trial comes, and this, these things come out in the trial, the other media doesn't pick it up because right. that doesn't go with the narrative that they've got emblazoned in their mind. 100%. Yeah, I saw that a lot on the Jackson trial too. And, you know, Casey Anthony, that was another one I covered, covered that for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. Um, Jerry Sandusky, that trial. Um, you, I love to sit in the courtroom. I don't know. It's I'm a freak. Right. <laughs> like it all unfold and uh, i'm fascinated right now with this um uh nbc documentary the thing about pam i don't know if you watched it but no. it's uh, uh, pam, pam who pam hupp h-u-p-p but the name of the series it's i think six episodes the thing about pam is the name of, i hi highly recommend it renee oh. zellwood the, the lead character and she's just unbelievable i'll definitely watch it yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't quite know how it comes out yet because there's only four episodes out now. But uh, true story. Spoiler alert! Yeah, true story. Spoiler alert: Pam goes to prison. So <laughs> I would somebody's got to go to jail. So, um, did you ever? Did you ever see the Neverland documentary? The the one and two. 
Yeah, yeah. With the with the two young men. Yeah, and then they go on Oprah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I saw the Oprah thing as well. I, you know, I wrote this book in 1995, and I wrote about Jimmy. And I wrote about, um, uh, gosh, Wade Robson, the two young men that you mm-hmm. saw in that story. I wrote about them. I knew, I knew, but I couldn't say anything because I would go and talk to Wade Robson's mother and she'd call me all sorts of names and tell me to get off the property. I couldn't get the other side of that. So I didn't mention Wade Robson as a potential victim mm-hmm. on the air. Or really in this book, I just told you what they did together, how many nights they slept together. You make up your own mind. I don't come to any conclusions in this book. You know, he was found not guilty. That system says he was not guilty. But this is my own personal copy of the book. And I have in the back scrolled, scratched, oh, about 30 names of young boys. I, you know, I can't, I mean, I'd show them to you, but then I'd have to kill you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and fully but surely, some of them are coming out. Let me just Wow, really? Are coming out. Yeah. Wow. And you're just like. Checking them off. Right. You know, so when you come out, you know what happens? The, the Jackson team, legal team, even to this day, the estate will attack you. The fans will attack you. I regularly get death threats from, you know, kids writing me from Norway mm-hmm. or Ireland or Germany, you know, from the Michael Jackson fan club. So that more f- five young men have come forward to say that they were molested by Michael Jackson. And I, I think in the ensuing years, you might hear from some more. maybe yeah and it's like you know he's he died so it's kind of like that's another kind of thing where they can you know whether it's true or not it's kind of like well he's not around anymore he can't it's it's kind of like goes by the wayside because yeah he's dead but still you know yeah to me you know i i know this sounds odd but to me it's not so much about michael jackson it's about what parents need to know Red flags parents need to look out for. You know, I, I'll tell you now, I, I do believe that Michael Jackson was guilty. I, I, I didn't write that. I didn't say that on the air at the time. I didn't write it in the book, but I, I can come to no other conclusion. And what parents need to know is exactly what Michael Jackson did, which was to seduce the parents first. You have to get the parents' trust first. And then you can get to their children. I, I have a, a chapter in here. I think it's chapter seven or eight with the man, Ken Lanning is his name, agent from the FBI who wrote the profile of a pedophile. And that's the first thing he says. They seduce the parents first, they get them to trust them, and then they have free reign with the kids. Wow. So to me, that's why that story was important. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> when I did the book tour on this, I went on the O'Reilly Factor Oh, God. Riley, who I knew, barely, but I knew the guy. I sat down and the first question was, he said, why do we care about Michael Jackson? And that was my answer. We should care because it could happen to your kid and you need to know the warning signs. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The, the, the one thing that stuck out to me in that documentary was 
for one, the detail that these guys were going into, I was like, there's no way that you could just make this stuff up. But the one fact, not fact, but the one thing that they said was the bell system. Like the, that, like, I was like, wow, that's like genius. On the, on the uh, master bedroom. Yeah. yeah, it's like 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 he knew he it basically would warn him and let him know that someone was coming down the hall through the other room and and he would know to either stop or whatever. Like I, I don't know, I feel like that's like you would remember that as a kid if that happened to you, if that makes sense. And and I know the layout of Neverland. There was a long hallway down to his bedroom. So at the first motion, at the end of the long hallway this alarm but bell bells would go off yep. and you would know somebody is coming down this long hallway with food or drink or, you know, whatever. Still. Yep. Yeah. That, 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 that caught me. I was like, uh, cause I was like, Oh, whatever. And then I saw that and I was like, Holy shit. Like that, that's extremely detailed. Um, yeah. It, yeah, you know. What stuck with me was um, well, Wade Robson, the uh, taller, larger fellow, the choreographer, mm-hmm. he had been in a lot of therapy. And he seemed to be dealing with it better. Uh, I saw a little bit of underlying anger. Remember, I saw this as a little kid. I saw him as a little That's true, yeah. You know, Um, but Jimmy Savechuck, to me, seemed like such a damaged young man. Um, I was so glad to see that he had such a strong, wonderful, supportive wife. His face was just full of agony to me when he was describing how Michael Jackson gave him a wedding ring and he get you know, all these, like you say, the details. Um, I hope he, since that documentary, I hope he's gotten that kind of therapeutic help too, to get over this. So, you know, it wasn't your fault kid. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's, and it never is. And that's, that's something that's important to, for, for people to know for sure. And um, hold on, let me see. There's, you brought up Sandusky. I was living in Pennsylvania when that happened. Oh, uh, yeah, a- that was crazy because it was like Penn State is like the holy grail in that state. So everybody that goes there, they, they could do no wrong. And then they had like this, you know, I also sometimes can put on my tinfoil hat, my conspiracy hat a little bit sometimes. Um but, you know, when you find out that Sandusky had, like, ties to these foundations with children and, you know, these, these uh, you know. Started he, them. Yeah, he, yeah, started. He, yeah, he had them. So he just basically had, like, a a, a, a funnel of, of new kids and stuff like that. And that that really was, like, damn. And then I think Paterno, whatever his name is, he, like, I think he, like, died because of the stress. Like, I do, too. I think yeah. he, he demised early as they say yeah you know that's another thing that ken lanning the profiler uh from the fbi for pedophiles told me that uh, that's another thing they seduce the parents and then they surround themselves that things with things that kids are going to love right you know a foundation a swimming club uh, uh sandusky had in his basement we heard during the trial he had this whole game room down there with a big water bed and hockey air hockey Darts and you know all the video. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Who testified? And there were many more in the wings that they were going to bring forward if something happened in this trial. They they had a whole nother set of kids uh, ready and available. The the uh, prosecutor told me, but this one kid said he was downstairs 
being sexually attacked and he was calling to Mrs. Sandusky upstairs for help. And he knew she was there because he could hear her in the kitchen and no help was come. Okay. Did she know about it? She says she did not. She was in the courtroom every day, very supportive of him. Their church people were there. There was a whole group of people that said this cannot possibly be correct. Wow. And then we heard voice <laughs> and it sure sounded like it was correct. Right. And yeah. Yeah. They threw the book at him. Right. Yeah. They, so. they sure did. And he tried to get a retrial and failed as yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. He'll, he'll never, hopefully, I don't think he'll ever see the light of day. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a crazy time. Um, which kind of like is a good segue to where I actually saw you more recently. Um, I was watching, uh, the Epstein documentary. It was a, who killed Epstein. Um, and I, I saw you and I was like, okay, like I've, I've been obsessed with, with this. I've known about Epstein. I mean, I've like before this, before he killed himself and all that stuff. I was like, this guy's always been like, a, a weird individual and kind of like sketchy. I was not surprised. Um, but what are your thoughts on, on that side? Cause I, I did before you answer, I talked to Chris Mogg, who is a reporter for in the New York post or something a couple of weeks ago. He was also in the documentary uh, very briefly. He was, he did a lot, of, a lot of the research on the Lolita express, like his, his plane. Um, so then we went down a rabbit hole of, of like, he's like, Hey, he thought that Epstein's life was more fascinating than his, him killing himself because of all the things, you know, how he got his money from, from Lex. Uh, um, it's it, it just, it was more fascinating than his death. Right. So what are your kind of thoughts on Epstein? And obviously I'm going to ask you if you think he killed himself. Um, but you know, from him getting, you know, a slap on the wrist in 2005 from the prosecutor that ended up being the attorney general, uh, you know, which is crazy. I've never seen. Uh, you can't, you just no, can't make. Uh, you yeah. Can't. It's crazy. You know, I, I agree with Chris The the lifestyle that this man came from, I mean, it was like a chubby little Jewish kid living out on Long Island, you know, yep. Yep. and then he worked way into being uh, but but brilliant especially in math and science he was brilliant um he probably never got laid as a kid yep. i mean i hate to be crude but you know he was fat and chubby and greasy hair and but he was smart and he weaseled his way in i think without even graduating from college into being a teacher at this really really prestigious prep school on the east side of manhattan where he meets the parents the fathers the rich wall street fathers of all these students who oh the students loved him by the way so that's what catapults him into this extra stratosphere he's no longer the long island kid you know pudgy kid right. going to corn on the weekend. Um, now he's in high society, so to speak. I'm really glossing over this quickly, but then here comes Ghislaine Maxwell right. from the UK with her beautiful British accent and her stylish clothes, and she knows the queen and she knows all sorts of things. Well, this is a perfect match for him because this can catapult him into yet another stratosphere. And I, I am fascinated about who he surrounded himself with, 
why they were so loyal to him, why they gave him so much money to handle, from Dershowitz to Clinton to Wexler. What is it? Victoria's Secret. He he owned Victoria's Secret. Yep. So Epstein decided to call girls in and, and have them parade in their underwear in front of him because he maybe can get them to be a Victoria's Secret model. Wow. So he had things. He had his daily massages and he had he had the Lolita Express and he had an island and he had a, a place in New Mexico and France. And I'm fascinated how he got so much money so quickly and it just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's what everybody looked at. They saw the pretty girls around him. Anybody who went to that island or to his townhouse in Manhattan. So what the the heck? Who are all these young nymphs around in their bathing suits in in Miami or in uh, Palm Beach? So people knew, but it's like, Michael Jackson. Everybody saw him. He was always with children, but you know, he's a rich, eccentric guy. And so now we have to turn it around on ourselves. We see all this stuff, but we don't stop and question it. We let the money uh, cloud our vision and our um, opinion. Ah, you know, he's just an eccentric guy. No, he was paying 14, 15, 16-year-old girls to come to his house and masturbate him and give them a hundred bucks because they were from poor families, was exploiting young girls. I mean, if he could, there's a story that he got 12-year-old twins from France gifted to him for his birthday at one, um, flown over by a fashion designer friend of his, you know, for the weekend. Here's your birthday present to 12-year-olds. Wow. You know, again, it comes back to what do we in society, what are we most impressed with? You know, the wealth and the plains and the islands, or do we really look past all that to the character of people? Right. In Epstein's case, I'll tell you, high society here in New York City was blinded by the guy. What you said about Epstein is 100% true. Like his life, how he got his money. I mean, I think uh, Les Wexler gave him or gave him that that like i don't even know how many millions of dollars of that townhome uh for one dollar yeah. Uh, yeah like he infiltrated like so many uh people in high society w- what got me though was like gates all these all these mul- like the richest people in the world are given this guy like you said who was a college dropout never really amounted to anything in his younger years all this money to to use or, or to invest in and, and manage and all that stuff but it's like they have access to the best people on the planet why would they uh, use him and and then he went to these august uh institutions and i think i have this right i'm i'm not sure yale harvard yep. uh, you know and and they said oh yeah you're gonna donate how much money to our scientific program come on in right and and so you know once he got into that level of society and got money money paved the way right. there was there was no place he couldn't go. And he had, don't forget, he had this mystique about him. He wasn't a very tall man, uh, but he had this steely eye. He was handsome. He, you know, for being a chubby little kid out in Long Island, he really, I thought he was a pretty attractive man. Right. Uh, and, and so you put the whole package together 
and he's got jets and limos and ma- mansions and ranches and you know wow who could resist right <clears throat> well first i'm going to ask you what you think really happened like do you think that someone who is about to unload some of the most powerful people on the planet against the government uh who is on suicide watch at a prison in new york that was underfunded the security guards were not the best quality they were sleeping and blah 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 blah. do you think that he truly killed himself you know i think real chance of it but i can also see where it could have been a contracted hit when you look at the photographs, as you saw in that documentary uh, in which I appeared, mm-hmm. um, there are orange sheets all over the place. That's weird. How come one inmate has all these different sheets, one of which, of course, was used to strangle him by tying it to the top bunk, and then he bent down on his knees, they say, until he strangled himself. You know, I got a problem with that theory because your body will make you faint before you can literally break your own neck. And so then I go back to this idea that the cameras in the hallway leading up to his cell suddenly didn't work. The two guards that were sitting outside were either asleep or on the internet shopping. They didn't bother to check on him as they said they did because they checked it off on the list. Mm That was phony. Um, He had been under suicide watch, and then all of a sudden he wasn't under suicide watch. And there was this former cellmate of his that was so muscle-bound. I mean, he could have taken me and snapped my neck in an instant. A cop. And I'm about the, yeah, the former cop. I'm about the same size. I'm 5'6". You know, snap your neck. And then walk out because, you know, the guard's got some overtime and the cameras were turned off. And so I can see both of them happening, frankly. Um, I think that Epstein was a little like G. Gordon Liddy or Anthony Pelicano, the uh, PI to the stars out in Hollywood. They had this omerta about them. You know, I'm loyal. I'm never going to say a word. I'm not going to turn on my friends. That sort of um loyalty baked into their system. So I can't really see that Epstein would ever open up his black book and say, okay, here are the guys that did the young girls with me. Mm -hmm. But I can see how some of the guys in that book might think he did. Right. Yeah. You know, money talks everywhere. And that the tombs down there where they hold the prisoners is, it's not as bad as Rikers, but it's a hellhole. And you could probably buy yourself just about anything in that building. Right. Would you want to know what I think? Question. You notice that? What's that? <laughs> I'm not really answering your question. Yeah, no, you're yeah, dancing around, which is totally fine. But uh, so are you, do you want to know what I think? Yes, please. Okay. What do you I personally think this is where I, my tinfoil hat comes in. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they faked his death. Uh because he um, is so valuable to the case. And, 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 and I, it's funny because I'm not a, I'm not a Trumper. I'm not a Trump fan. I don't, I'm like more of a indif- like independent type person, Me. but right. So when Trump came into office, there has never been more 
there was never like the child um, trafficking and human trafficking stuff was never really on the radar. And then as soon as he came into office, it really started to pick up. And there was cases all over the country, huge busts. And then Epstein comes into play. And I personally think that Epstein had a big part in that and was working with the government for a while. Um, and then he, you know, suicided because he, he's too valuable. And they know that the people in that book are extremely powerful and 100% could get to him. Um, and they have, you know, maybe haven't been hiding or something, or I think he's a, a, an informant uh, for sure. And I think he's alive. And I think that's why uh, just Lane was able to get captured and, and she was prosecuted and found guilty. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that more will come in the future, but I don't that's know. That's a fascinating theory, <laughs> right? I mean, the U.S. Marshals were uh, busting oh. wild um, sex trafficking rings right and left, yep. Florida, Oklahoma, all over the place. The FBI was doing. That's fascinating. Yeah. But the tinfoil hat theory, though, isn't it? it? It is kind of like a yeah. Well, they had to fake his death and blah 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 blah. And I and that that's. Huh? I mean, did we give him plastic surgery and put him in witness protection somewhere? I totally could do that. The, the, to think that the U.S. government couldn't be capable of that, I think, is ridiculous. They totally could do that. Maybe he's still out on that island that nobody can get on, but you got to get a boat to get there. And that, I'd never thought of that. That's, that's a very, I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> it is interesting, and it's kind of like, a, it is kind of crazy, but at the same time, it's like, do you think that, like, as much as Trump is a ridiculous person, He's also smart in certain ways, right? So not that he would have the masterful plan of like keeping him alive and all this stuff. But I think if people really wanted to get into the inner circles of those, you know, uh, was it uh, Prince Andrew or whatever? I mean, these people are like untouchable, the Clintons. I mean, I, I have friends that I've known for almost 30 years that I have barely gone on vacation with, let alone flown on a plane with. And, Bill, and you're telling me that Bill Clinton doesn't doesn't like Epstein or didn't know him that well now, but you flew to his island and on his uh, on his private plane over twenty times. Like, and, and why 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 would right. he do that? Bake in the sun somewhere? Come on, right. go out for that. No, I, I I agree with what you're saying about his um, untouchability. Uh, but you know what? Too, I, I'll just play devil's advocate. Once you're in prison. And you see what life is like there and you can't sleep at night because everybody's screaming and they leave the lights on and you can't sleep and you can't, you know, things get pretty depressing True. and there are a lot of suicides in prison. So I kind of like your theory. I, there, <laughs> there's that one photo of Epstein on the stretcher coming out. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Pictures, you know, of uh, ligature marks on his um, throat and, and whatnot. But come to think of it, I never heard about a funeral. I never heard about him being cremated. I never heard what they did with the body. Nothing. Yep. Nothing. It's it's like the it's what it, like Osama bin Laden. I talked to a lot. I talked to a couple of Navy SEALs and stuff like that on here, and I always ask him. I'm like, you know, they threw him over the the ocean because that was like the proper burial that they would get. And I'm just like, I mean, not that that they, they would put. A, a you know a picture of Osama bin Laden's dead body across the internet and show the us that he is dead and I, it just reminded me very much of like 
I mean, okay, you got that one side shot of him on the gurney, and that is it. Yeah. That yep. is it. There's and nothing. Does, it does look like a postmortem face, I must admit, because oh, yeah. that doesn't even look like him. Look at his face. But your face falls, your skin falls away from your bones when right. you're dead, yep. you know? Um, oh, I'm going to be thinking about this long <laughs> up here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 interesting and it's it's something that you know you, you can go down a rabbit hole with because it's like it's and, and another thing i asked uh, chris the guy that was in the documentary that you were in i personally it's there was so much media coverage when epstein was on trial and or not on trial but when he was about to go on trial and all that stuff and then when Ghislaine gets arrested there's like to me I felt like there was not an equal amount and she got convicted of five of six of those counts. So it's like, I, I mean, and then Chris is like, Oh no, there was a ton of coverage. I'm like, was there though? Like there wasn't really as much as there was for Epstein. I thought, and she was actually convicted. Yeah. Um, no, I think there was more coverage of, of Epstein. I, I, I agree with that, but um, you know, I'm just a news freak. So I was all, <laughs> Jelaine, Galane, whatever. I, I have a really good friend who's a courtroom artist. And of course, in, in New York courts, you can't take a camera. So I was talking to Elizabeth. Okay, what's she really like? You oh, know, wow. so I was all about all about that. Right. Yeah. And I heard like in, in the in prison, like you said, like prison sucks. And like in prison, she was like really struggling because she couldn't get this, she couldn't get that, she couldn't sleep, she couldn't eat, and blah, 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 blah. So it's like couldn't get any beauty rest yeah right. yep couldn't get her 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 spa days and stuff and i'm just like like i mean come on you're you're There's no, no, I mean, no. Uh, oh, okay cool all right well i'm glad we talked about that um there's real quick i just one question about uh, uh john benet ramsey that case has fascinated me for as long as i've known about it for i mean as i was like when i was a kid i was like oh wow like this so mysterious and then i think there was like a documentary probably like five or seven years ago that i watched and they really focused on the brother yeah yeah, yeah. what are your thoughts on that case because they still haven't yet to figure that is it was it the parents was it the brother and then the parents helped cover it up and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was one of the um last cases i covered for hard copy they sent me to boulder colorado and they said figure it out well wow okay, I'll just figure it out. <laughs> there was a very, um, I mean, it was swarming with media, first of all, and it was a very closed community. Nobody was going to talk about, oh, no, can't, no comment. Doors would slam. Right. Um, and it was impossible to get anything. And, and the DA was weird and the cops were secretive and you, know, you couldn't get anything. Um, and my boss at Hard Copy, who was new to me, she was a new boss, um, screamed and yelled at me. You guys, I'll tell you what you do. You follow that little brother home from school and get on him. Oh and I God. thought, you know what? I am done. And that's when I quit. I quit after seven years. I left hard copy. I, I called my agent and I said, look, get me out of here. I, I can't, I'm not going to go and follow a little fourth grader or right. whatever. Um, what was his first name? I'm forgetting. Brett. Brett. Oh. I think it was Brett or it was oh. a B, I think. But I was not going to do that. I'm a mother. 
uh, I wouldn't want somebody doing that to my child. And I've just, I'm, you know what I did? I've never admitted this publicly. I listened to the screaming. I said, yes, ma'am. I hung up and I went to the movies. Do you know what you watched? I went and watched like two or three movies in a movie theater. And my cameraman, nobody knew where I was. I just said, that's it. Wow. I can't anymore. But back to your question. Um, my constitutionally protected opinion is that when you can't figure out something, find the one thing that explains it all that's your and that younger brother if he was involved in killing his sister explains everything it explains why maybe patsy wrote the ransom note to cover it up it explains why they hired a criminal defense attorney right away it explains why after a while, they took that young son and they sent him off to a family in Georgia to get him out of there. Um, it explains a lot. You know, Mr. Ramsey had already lost a daughter, uh, uh, an adult daughter from another marriage to a car accident, as I recall. And John Benet is dead. And so they have one adult son in college and this other one. And this other one, Gads, I wish I could remember his Burke. name. Burke, thank you. Burke had allegedly already attacked John Bonet in younger days with a golf club ban to the head. So, because he was mad about something. He, he, when you saw him on Dr. Phil speaking, you thought to yourself, I thought to myself, this is a kid on the spectrum. Right. You know, I, I'm not saying he's stupid. I'm not, no, I'm just saying this was not he's socially awkward yeah 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 so to me again my opinion because that family is very litigious but i am entitled to my own opinion i think saying that burke killed his sister and maybe rolled her up in a rug or maybe the parents rolled her up in a rug to hide her whatever explains everything that's that a good logical conclusion right. in my i like the the, the thought process of like how you said like if there if even though it can't be proven or anything like that like if there's that one piece and you, you fit that in there but it it solves everything yeah. yeah the puzzle is complete with that uh my my husband is very wise and he once said to me when there's a whole lot of things wrong with something there's really only one thing wrong right and i remembered that so what's the one thing that makes all the Jean Benet puzzle pieces come together. It's little brother Burke. Right. Yep. No, that, that's, I've actually never thought of it, but because when you think of like, you could put, you could apply that to any of these cases that have those kind of like those standouts that you could just plug in. Like this would literally solve all of it. Granted, you need evidence to obviously go yeah. that, but that's a guy. I, I, I like that. I'm going to steal that. So your homicide detectives do too. Okay. Here's what I got. Here are the puzzle pieces. What's the centerpiece? What brings it all together? Right. What makes And sometimes you never find that puzzle piece. And sometimes you think you find it, but you can't prove it. Right. You know, that's where I am on Jumpin' Ramsey. Right. That's, I love that. That's great. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. Two more things and I'll let you get out of here. Um, okay. So you interviewed James Earl Ray. Yes, who, I did. Who, uh, who assassinated, air quotes, Martin Luther King. Right. Um, 
of all of the assassinations and conspiracies that I have thought about, Martin Luther King is one that stands out to me that is next to JFK as far as like mafia being involved and, you know, all that stuff. What was he like for one? And did he kind of indulge in anything else that was uh, kind of like not straightforward? Like, oh, I just didn't like him, so I killed him. Yeah, uh, I see what you're saying. I have to tell you, that was the worst interview I ever did. What? It was the worst interview I ever did. And it wasn't my fault. He couldn't get out he couldn't explain and he blinked all the time he blinked like this you know he was just blinking 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 and i'm i'm a, a body language watcher you know right. if talking to you and they're telling you something and they keep looking away they're probably lying right well that's what he did the whole time and he squirmed and he squished and i thought to myself this this is like um like a a man who's been an alcoholic for too many years and he just couldn't focus and he couldn't wow even really give you one quote that he gave me that would answer your second question about right. what did he say he just kept saying that's the wrong question to ask well okay let me ask you point blank did you kill martin luther king that's the wrong question to ask you see there was this guy named raul who came to town and told me it was crazy wow couldn't hardly follow what he was saying because he was so intellectually disabled. Wow. Um, that's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah, that's that's my honest opinion. My my cameraman, Lewis Bailey, what a piece of work that guy was. I love that guy. Um, they brought James Earl Ray. You, you can't just walk through a prison. No. You know, Mountain State Prison in Tennessee, right? This isn't, no. Yeah. This is a bad one. So, they, they, I said, well, I need some B-roll of your inmate. Well, they let him walk across the um, courtyard to us. We're in a glassed-in room. And so we shot a picture of him walking. And then he came in and he just, he was squirrely. He was distracted. He was, I don't know. But he spotted Lewis Bailey and he said, hey, Lewis, how are you? So when the whole interview was over and I, you know, I just kept, trying to pull something out of him. I looked at Lewis and I said, what the, what the heck? He greeted you like your old friends. He said, oh yeah, I was here two or three days ago with Geraldo Rivera. We did the same kind of interview. It was awful. Oh my God. <laughs> so um, it wasn't just me. It was James Earl Ray. He wow. was indecipherable in what he said. Interesting. I I Punch it, but that was it no no see, see now my conspiracy mind goes like huh i wonder if he was brainwashed to be like that ha ha or maybe <laughs> so stupid <laughs> sorry but you know maybe so intellectually disabled that he was an easy pawn for somebody else to use to uh -huh. do what he you know i i i just got no feeling at That's all interesting yeah. Well, thanks, Lewis, for the heads up. If you just went there with Geraldo, that was a good thing because you don't want a cameraman who talks out of school. True. But he knew Geraldo, so you know. That's anyway. too funny. Um, all right. Last thing about uh, let's talk about the Free Britney and, and what you've been writing about since 2015. Oh um, yes, yes. And then your new book that you got coming out. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, you know, I have covered so many of these cases, crime, murder, serial killers, whatever. I am, as I said at the top, always interested in victims. Right. And um, I found a flaw in the court system, which others have found before me, but no, the public doesn't pay attention to. And I want them to pay attention to it now. And it's called the guardianship conservatorship system. It is what happened to Britney Spears. Now, Britney Spears was shaving her head and beating a paparazzi with umbrellas and doing drugs. And she was she needed help, obviously. Right. But 13 years, 14 years, she's earning millions and millions of dollars in tours all over the world. And she's still under conservatorship. So that is the story that finally woke up the public. And as you say, I've been covering this story since 2000. 12 was the first one I heard about 2015 I finally found evidence that I could start writing about it and it's a system that allows the court to sort of willy-nilly say you're incapacitated so put this guardian in charge of you and this your person and this conservator in charge of your estate and you're going to do exactly what they say and you have no more civil rights and when I first started covering the story, it was all about the elderly. You know, you work hard all your life, you make a little nest egg, and then somebody comes in and takes it away from you, mm -hmm. takes rights away. And then they say they're protecting you while they pay themselves out of your money. And now you need a housekeeper or a driver or a, a something, you know, a messenger service. Well, you pay for that because the guardian hired them wow. for you. Well, you don't want a chef in your kitchen, but the guardian hired that chef. So you, your estate has to pay for it. So at first it was just elderly people and I could not get my publisher at the time. Well, this book I've written, this is my fourth book now, but Simon & Schuster wasn't interested. No, it's about old people. Nah. But over the years, Corey, I have discovered that the target group isn't just elderly anymore. It's people like Britney Spears and Amanda Bynes and people, uh, young people who have inherited money from their grandpa. Or um, there's a case, a, a young man out in Staten Island who was born, um, there was, he had a birth defect at, at birth because of a medical malpractice. He got $1.9 million. Well, the court says, you got all this money, we're gonna give you a guardian until you're 18. Well, when you turned 18, the guardian didn't wanna give it up and kept petitioning the court to continue to be the guardian and get the fees and get the, deplete this poor young man who has a mild form of cerebral palsy to deplete his estate. Wow. Well, he has cerebral palsy, he's not stupid. You know, cerebral palsy affects your motor skills, not your intellect. Right. The, the uh, targeted group now is young people, people who want a workman's compensation case. Um, I found, this was astounding to me, that divorce attorneys in contested divorces are now telling husbands, let's just guardianize your soon-to-be ex-wife. Then she'll, she'll have no more civil rights. She can't vote, hire a lawyer, travel, go to church, vote, and she can't do anything. And then she, we'll, we'll get you your divorce. The judge will give you a divorce 
on her behalf. Oh my God. Yeah. So this is what I'm writing about. The book is called The Racket, as in a mafia-style Rico racket. And um, it frankly involves $50 billion in assets every single year. That's the number of assets that travel from people's estates outward. What? It's supposed to be heirs. You know, your grandfather wants you to have his money. Right. But he declares grandpa's uh, incapacitated and they take the money because they're the guardian. So you'll be fascinated, I think. I'd love to come back and talk to you more about it. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I have a, qu a question or two about that because I never knew about it until I saw uh, Free Britney. And then it made, I was like, wow, like she was like, kind of like, seemed like she was, you know, losing her marbles a little bit. But I, I found it fascinating how hard it was to get out of it for her. Exactly. And and for everybody. I mean, I can I can count... I've, I've investigated thousands of cases and I can count on this, these hands, how many people actually got out. What? Yeah. Once you're in, you're in, you can have a car accident, have a brain trauma. They put you under guardianship, but then you get better. Well, good luck getting off guardianship. Why is it so hard? Because it involves judges and lawyers and guardians that have this cottage industry that all work together. And the only way they make money, not the judges, because taxpayers pay them, the only way they make money is from these wards. Mm -hmm. So who's going to tattle about bad behavior or overbilling or, you know, taking my cerebral palsy kid and putting him in a hospital because you think he's having a rough time and then you overmedicate him to the point of coma? Wow. These these guardians and conservators have astounding amounts of power. And, well, you heard it from Brittany. She couldn't even have a baby. She couldn't even marry. She couldn't have a boyfriend drive her in his car to go get a Starbucks. That's, that's crazy. That's how completely confining it is. And it just, again, I I go for underdog stories. And this one... I found thousands of them. 1.3 million people are under guardianship right now in the United States. Wow. Some people need it. I mean, some people just need sure. it. They have dementia, they're paralyzed in a coma, they're whatever it is. Right. But um, we don't even know if that number's right because nobody, not one state, not one federal entity keeps track of how many people have their rights taken away by guardianship. Wow. Nope. That's crazy. Well, I mean, it makes that just sounds like 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 your book is a perfect name for it. That sounds like a huge oh. kind of racket. <laughs> like exactly. oh my god. And you, I hope I'm describing it well enough here that you make you think, oh my God, could that happen to my mom, my dad, to right. me? You know, a lot of times it's family, uh, you know. I don't know your circumstance, but say you have a widowed mother, you have brothers and sisters, you, what do we do with mom? We can't figure it out. And the siblings start fighting, maybe right. rivalries kick in. And one person goes to a lawyer, say an elder law lawyer or an estate lawyer. And that lawyer will say, I have the perfect 
perfect way to solve your problem. It's called guardianship. We'll take you to court. You'll get guardianship over your mom. Is that what you want? Okay, great. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, we'll get you a private guardian then. The, the judge will appoint a private, a professional. Okay. So they get to court and the brother or sister who started this action says, good, I'm going to be the guardian. Well, no, that's not what usually happens. Sometimes it happens, but the judge can say, you know, there's a lot of dysfunction in your family. I don't think I should name you. I'm going to name this professional over here. Well, that's one of the judge's favorites. Oh. In his court all the time. That person probably has a hundred wards. I found guardians that had four hundred wards all at one time. And wards are are people. But yeah, wards of the court. Once you're incapacitated, you're named the ward of the court. So one person service one hundred wards at the same time, or four hundred. There's one. I got to tell you this quick story. There's one. Who was about to go on trial? Her name is Rebecca Farrelly, and she had so many wards all over the state of Florida. Now that's a big state, you know. Yeah. How in all all those different counties? Well, she would put "do not resuscitate" orders on the ones that were in the hospital because you know I got plenty. I just do not resuscitate. Well, he picked it the wrong person. There was a, a military man named Stephen Stryker. He had a swallowing problem. And she put a do not resuscitate against the wishes of his daughter and himself. She put a DNR on. And then she ordered that his feeding tube be capped. And the hospital staff stood by and watched this man die slowly for a week. What? They finally caught up with her. She has been indicted. She is awaiting trial now on many, many, many charges. She overbilled Medicare. She did this. She did that. There's all sorts of allegations. Oh, my God. Uh, so that's how bad it can get. That's cr- There's a movie that just came out about a year ago. I Care A Lot. I Care A Lot. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's this type, same thing? It, it, that Rosamund Pike, the actress there, just captured the viciousness of predatory guardians and again some guardians are great right but the predatory guardian she just captured that character so well and then of course the movie went off on this weird it did hollywood thread about a midget and the, yeah the drug dealers and ah, it was crazy but yeah yeah that that character was um labeled after or fashioned after uh, a guardian from uh nevada her name is and April Parks did horrible things to people. And she got, um, if I'm remembering not right, 18 to 40 years. She's in prison right now. Damn. Yeah. You want to know how mean she was? When they arrested her, put her in prison, somebody bid on her storage unit because the bill hadn't been paid. And the guy went in and he found crematory urns of 27 people. So her wards would die. She would cremate them. She would put them in an urn and throw them, literally throw them into this storage unit. She didn't bother to send the ashes in a dignified way to the families or to even tell the families that their person had died. She just threw them in a storage unit. That's all. Yeah. Wow. What a piece of shit. (laughs) I just just Googled her. Yeah. Guardianship ringleader behind bars. Yeah. 
heart. That's crazy. She's a laxy looking woman, but yeah. So public starting to learn about guardianship. I hope my book will not only show them the depths of the depravity of it, but also give them some good tips on how to avoid it in their own family. Right. Well, yeah, I look forward to it. I'll definitely, uh, (laughs) when's it coming out? Well, uh, it's Brandeis University Press and my manuscript is due in May. So pretty soon, pretty soon, probably I would guess. Cool. All right. Well, I'll keep a lookout on that. And uh, I, you know, like you said, I'd love to have you back whenever it comes out and talk more about that. Cause I, I mean, I feel like we just scratch the surface. Really? I feel like I've been talking way too much. <laughs> oh no, no. I feel, Oh my God. I have like, so you've, you know, opened Pandora's box now with everything. So, but, well, but your tinfoil conspiracy stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely, I'll shoot you some uh, ideas through text, but I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. And that's another episode for the E4 Explosive Podcast. We'll see you next time.